Matthew 5, 6, and 7 house the Sermon on the Mount, probably the most famous message Jesus Christ ever spoke. It's the most famous sermon by the greatest preacher ever. And Jesus says these words to his disciples. Matthew 5 begins, And seeing the multitude, he went up on a high mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying. So Jesus gives this message to his disciples, but no doubt gathered around them are some of the religious elite. He has a lot to say about some of the practices that went on. Beginning in Matthew chapter 6, and today we take the first four verses, the Lord will speak to us about the genuine Christian life. Take heed, he says, that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Years ago, the people of Texas were being robbed, hassled, by a notorious bank robber by the name of Jorge Rodriguez. Jorge would slip across the border from Mexico into Texas, rob banks, and then quickly scurry to his hideaway up in the mountains. They got tired of this, and finally they hired a crack detective to come down and find this man, take him to justice, and bring the money back. He stole millions of dollars. The detective went from the United States down into a little Mexican town where he heard Jorge was at near to his hideaway. And he walked in and he saw in the corner sat Jorge Rodriguez. So the detective pulls out his gun, points it in his direction and says, at last I found you. Now give back the money or I'll blow you away. Just then, another gentleman walks up to the detective and says, Excuse me, senor, but, and he introduces himself, My name is Juan Garcia. You see, Jorge does not speak English. And he didn't hear a word that you said. He didn't understand a thing that you said. Would you like me to translate for you? He said, Well, actually, that'd be very helpful. You tell Jorge that he better tell me where that money is or I'm going to kill him. No problem, senor. So Jorge and Juan talked and they talked and they gestured. And Jorge in Spanish told Juan, take the gentleman a mile out of town and go into a well, go down the well, take out the third brick and he'll find two, three million dollars worth of gold. The helpful translator smiled to himself and then he turned to the detective and he said, Senor, I am so sorry, but Jorge can't remember where he put the money. You're going to have to shoot him. (laughs) See, that translator was worse than the thief. He was a greater thief and a murderer and a liar. Pretending to be somebody helpful to translate, he actually 
stole the money himself. Phony Christians have been the plague of the church from the very beginning. Jesus calls them hypocrites. Notice the word is found in verse 2. It's also found in verse 5. And it's also found in verse 16. It means an actor, one who plays a part, one who has a mask on and pretends to be something he's not. And Jesus will speak about it in three areas. The area of giving, the area of praying, and the area of fasting. These are the three cardinal practices of good Jews in the first century. That sort of brought them up to the level of righteousness. And so Jesus will talk about that here. First of all, he's going to speak about giving and about hypocrisy in that area. And if I were to sum up this section... I would say that Jesus is raising up the banner of integrity, saying, out with hypocrisy, up with integrity, or he would say to some of these religious leaders, how dare you say what you say when you live like you live? It was time for authentic spirituality, authentic Christianity. Did you know that Jesse James loved to go to church? He was a notorious bank robber, robbed trains, In fact, one day he went and robbed a train and then he got baptized at the Kearney Baptist Church. Another time he robbed a bank, killed the bank teller, and went and joined the church choir offering up his services to instruct people on how to sing hymns. He said he loved Sundays. He loved going to church, but he was often busy on Sundays robbing trains and robbing banks. A hypocrite. A phony. Look at the term in verse 1, charitable deeds. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. The word is an interesting one. If you have a King James, it talks about alms. That's how it's translated, alms, giving of alms. The word means righteous actions as well as giving money, giving alms to help a variety of causes. It's the kind of thing that people watch you do but can't always see the motive that's in your heart. So it is with praying. So it is with fasting. Things that people see that we do but they can't see the motivations of our heart. So this morning we want to look at a few things. Number one, giving generally. Why it's good. Why it's biblical. Giving negatively how not to do it and then giving positively the best way to do it. First of all, look at the first couple of verses. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds, your giving of alms, before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Verse 2. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed. Notice that. Notice Jesus doesn't say, if you do a charitable deed, but when you do a charitable deed. In other words, he assumes that you will do them. He took it for granted that they would. Paul said, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works, doing good things, doing helpful things, should characterize the Christian. It's the fruit of our life. James said, faith without works is dead. And uh, just a glance through the Old Testament will show that God is concerned and merciful 
when it comes to the giving of alms for those in need. God always had a heart for the poor. He said, when you glean your fields, leave some of the crop. Let the poor go in and take what they need. And there was always special provision given to the poor. Even Jesus and his disciples kept a money bag in John chapter 13 from which they would take and give money to the poor. So doing good things, giving alms financially, is something that is good. It is biblical. It is for all Christians, especially for those who are wealthy. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, and he says, Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. You might go, I'm glad it doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich. Well, I guess it depends on who you're comparing yourself to. If we were to compare ourselves to the rest of the world, we're all very wealthy. Even the lowest on the economic rung of the ladder is wealthier than comparatively sense, comparative to third world countries and most of the rest of the world. It's staggering when we realize that our garbage disposal eats better than 30% of the world's population. Our garbage disposal eats better than 30% of the world's population. Now, the Bible has actually a lot to say about money. Maybe not as much as some preachers have to say about money, but it certainly has a lot to say about it. In fact, it's the main subject of nearly half of the parables that Jesus told. One out of every seven verses in the New Testament deals somehow with this topic. And on a comparative scale, the Scripture has 500 verses on prayer, fewer than 500 verses on faith, but over 2,000 verses on finances. It's huge. It's all over the place in the New Testament. So giving is biblical. And giving is evidential. It shows that there has been a change of values when we are willing to give to those in need. Think of all of the charitable organizations that have developed as a result of the gospel. The Red Cross, the United Fund, World Vision, Samaritan's Purse, all of these with that common vision of the Lord Jesus touched my heart. I want to help others in need. If you were to think of the world pre-Christ, B.C., a world of oppression, poverty, destitution, and how that hospitals and orphanages were developed by and large by Christian men and women who had a heart to share the love and the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ in helping those in need. And what happened is the gospel changed individuals' lives. Those individuals evidenced the change by wanting to give back to their society. I'm going to read a letter to you that comes from 125 A.D. It was written in Athens by an Athenian philosopher by the name of Aristides to the emperor Hadrian. And he's writing about Christians in the culture. Christianity wasn't very old. It was a new movement sweeping through Rome. This is what the philosopher writes. From widows, they do not turn away their countenance. They rescue the orphan from him who does violence. He who has gives to him who has not without grudging. When one of the poor, their poor, passes away from this world and any of them sees him, then he provides for his burial according to his ability. 
If they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if it's possible that he may be delivered, they deliver him. If there is among them a man that is poor or needy, and they have not an abundance of necessities, they fast for two or three days that they may supply the needy with their necessary food. In other words, the church was giving evidence to the world of their genuineness in their faith. You, know, you can tell a lot about a person's faith by taking a tour of their checkbook. I'm not saying that you should take your person's neighbor's checkbook and start going through it, but you could certainly tell a lot about a person's values if you take a tour of where they spend their money. Jesus said it this way, where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. Martin Luther used to remark that um, uh, he said, there's three conversions that are necessary. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the wallet, the pocketbook. Now, I'm not here trying to gouge you for money or anything. Isn't it interesting that we're just going through the Bible, and as we go through the Bible, all of these topics seem to emerge, whether it's divorce, whether it's marriage, whether it's anger and forgiveness with a brother, or whether it's giving. These are just on the palette as we go through the Scriptures. Here's something else. If every church member in the United States were suddenly to lose his or her job and went on welfare and yet they were willing to tithe from the minimal amount they received from public assistance, giving in our nation's churches would immediately increase over 30%. If everyone lost their job and they gave based upon subsidy by the government, if they all were to tithe, giving in our nation's churches would be up 30%. So giving is good. It's biblical. It's evidential. But it's dangerous. It's dangerous if it's not done in the right way with the right motivation. And that's why Jesus begins by saying, verse 1, take heed. Take heed or beware. In other words, watch it in this area. So let's think about giving negatively, looking at it the wrong way. Jesus says, take heed or beware or watch out, be on the lookout, that you do not do your charitable deeds, giving of alms, before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, don't sound a trumpet before you. As the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may have glory from men, assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Giving of alms was considered one of the most sacred duties of any Jewish person. It, it, it equated a person with righteousness. In fact, the very same word, giving of alms, and righteousness have the same root word. They thought that you could actually buy your way into heaven. Listen to this rabbinical saying, almsgiving, said the rabbi, almsgiving doth deliver from death and it purges away all sin. So you now have an interesting lifestyle whereby you can do just about anything, but as long as you're giving alms, you're purging yourself away from spiritual death. 
I had a guy who actually believed this. I was uh, trying to rent a building years ago to meet in our church in Albuquerque, and we didn't have the money to pay for the rent. And uh, the owner of the building said, tell you what, I'll lower my price so that you can afford whatever it is you can afford. He goes, the way I figured is this might be just what it takes to shove me over into the threshold of heaven come judgment day. So I put the pen down right there and I said, well, listen, buddy boy, that's not what's going to help you. You need a personal relationship with Christ. And I spelled out the gospel clear and plain to him and said, we're not going to do this deal until you understand that. He said, okay, well, I'll sign it anyway. But notice Jesus talks about in verse 2 the wrong operation of giving. You announce it. You sound a trumpet. The wrong motivation to be noticed or to be seen by men. And the wrong remuneration to be rewarded by people because they know you did it. Here's the principle. Giving should involve three parties. The giver, the recipient, and God. There's a fourth party that should never be involved, an audience. As much as lies in you, as far as your motivation, that fourth party, the audience, is not to be involved. You know, there there was a special room in the temple 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. It was called the Chamber of the Silent. It was a great idea. They had this little room where people could give anonymously, and and it was a, a quiet place. They could give for the needs of poor people, and poor people could come to that Chamber of the Silent so they wouldn't have to beg or be embarrassed because they needed financial help. And so they came to the chamber of the silent, but there were some folks who were unable to give without making noise. They wanted the fanfare. Uh, Sometimes things were read before somebody wealthy would give something. I think that Jesus' words here rules out some practices. I think it rules out public pledging. I think it rules out having a donation plaque filled with names of the givers or prizes that would be given away because somebody gave the most. That's why I have never done pledge Sundays or stewardship drives or any of this nonsense. I believe the Lord's telling me there's 10 people right now with $10,000. Hallelujah. (laughs) There's enough hype in the Christian church and on Christian media. And I don't think God is into that. In fact, I heard a story about Mark Twain. He came to church one day and the preacher went on and on and on about money and he got irritated him so much that when they took the offering, which was at the end of the service, not only did he not put what he intended to put in the offering plate, he actually took some and went home. Now, please, I'm not advocating that you do that here. But in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul said, God loves a cheerful giver. The Greek word hilaros. God loves a hilarious giver. You don't see too many hilarious givers. Think of it. Ha, ha, ha. Woo, Lord, it's all yours. Really. But God loves a hilarious giver. One who would give with joy from their heart, not to be seen by men. Verse 2, notice, Therefore, when you do, a charitable deed. Don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Literally, they have received payment in full. God doesn't owe you anything. Can you imagine somebody dying and going to heaven 
wanting to get rewards at the Bema Seat of Christ. The Bible says we will. And the guy says, uh, Lord, you know, something's missing here. Don't you remember all the money that I gave to those Christian organizations and those charitable causes and my church every Sunday? And the Lord said, no, I have no record of it. Oh, you've got to have record of it. You're God. Uh, I can prove my name's on a plaque in the back of the building. Ah, that's why you don't get a reward up here. You got yours down there. You did it so that everybody would notice how benevolent you are. You've received your reward. I think that was the motivation for Ananias and Sapphira doing what they did in the book of Acts. They pretended to give so much and they really had held some back, but they wanted their reputation to be known as the benevolent ones. So when they would walk into the church, people would say, there's Ananias and Sapphira. They gave it all. God struck them dead, if you remember. It was all a show. Charles Spurgeon said, there's no reward from God for those who seek it from men. You see, giving that way only stimulates giving for the wrong reasons. It actually fuels the carnal motivation rather than the spiritual. Look at the last two verses. This is where we'll close. We've looked at giving generally, giving negatively. Now look at giving positively or the right way. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. The right hand was considered the hand of strength. Forgive me if you're left-handed today. It's just the way it was back then. Most people were right-handed. Probably most people are right-handed today. You can be left-handed, and you might want to turn this around and say, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. But, but the point is this. Since the right hand, the arm of strength, is the arm by which you do so many normal activities in a normal day, shaking, waving, writing. Let your giving be so natural, so spontaneous, just in the course of your normal life, that you don't have to make noise about it. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Jesus said, do it secretly. Kryptos is the Greek word. It means cryptically, hidden. Very natural, very spontaneous. I want to close by giving you some guidelines that I think are biblical guidelines for giving because I get a lot of questions about this. Well, now, should we give on the, and tithe on the gross or on the net? Or should we, how much do we... Let me just sort of free you up and give you what I think are biblical guidelines for it. A lot of people are asking for finances these days. A lot of them are good causes, but there are charlatans as well. And people have figured this out, how to extract funds from the body of Christ. So let me give you a few guidelines. Number one, Christians should regularly and systematically give to the work of the local church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, Paul writes, On the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. So for the local church to be strengthened and to build upon in a community, that's what we're called to do. Now sometimes he's also called us to give to those in need as we see that there's an opportunity to give above and beyond that. But I've always made it my practice that the first check I cut is the check to my local church. 
Number two, giving is part of God's cycle of blessing. As God has blessed us, we want to be a blessing to the body of Christ or to those in need, but especially to God himself. Jesus said, give and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing, will men give to your bosom. Paul said, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows abundantly will reap abundantly. Guideline number three, giving is to be sacrificial. It's to be sacrificial. We give in proportion to what we have. David said something interesting. He wanted to build a temple for God. So he went to a guy's threshing floor named Ornan, and he saw that was the perfect place to build the temple. Ornan said, David, if you want it, I'll give it to you. You don't have to pay for it. You're going to build a house for God. I'll give you the land. David said, oh, no, I want to pay for it because I will never give God something that doesn't cost me. That was his principle. It's got to cost me. I'm going to measure it by what it costs me. You know the story about the widow. She threw in two mites. Jesus noticed it. People were giving money in the treasury. And uh, Jesus said, you know, I've noticed that all of these are giving out of their abundance, but this widow has given out of her poverty. All that she has, it was a sacrifice. Number four, giving is to be personally determined. Rather than legalistic percentages, 10% of gross versus net, it's what you determine in your heart, 2 Corinthians 9. So let each one of us give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And number five, giving should be in response to our need or to the need that we see in the body of Christ. The early church took up a collection for the church in Jerusalem. They found out they had a need. The mother church was suffering. People were losing their jobs. It was hard to eat in Jerusalem. It was hard for Christians to feed their families. And so the Gentile churches took up a collection. Now, I'm going to recommend that today or this week, You take a walk through your house and you look around at what you own. And as you do, you go, yeah, I remember when I bought that. Got a good deal on that. I didn't get a great deal on that, but I'm glad I have it. You just kind of look through your house at what you own. And as you do, you say this to yourself, I don't own it. I'm a steward of it. It all comes from his hand. And then you ask yourself the question, how am I being a steward of what God has entrusted with me? How am I helping people and helping others? The Lord loves a cheerful giver. Does that describe you? Are you the kind of giver that's like this? Or like this? Somebody once said, there's three kinds of givers, the flint, the sponge, and the honeycomb. To get anything out of the flint, you've got to hammer it. You only get chips and sparks when you do. Sponge, you've got to squeeze it. And the more you squeeze it, the more water you get out of it. Squeeze, squeeze, squeeze every drop. But then there's a honeycomb that naturally flows out of its own sweetness. Three kinds. What is the right reason to give? Because we love God. Because we belong to Him. Look at that last verse in that section once again. Verse 4, 
that your charitable deed may be in secret, kruptas, hidden, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Here's the principle. If we remember, God will forget. If we forget, God will remember. Don't worry about the math, the percentages. Do it for God. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your reward. I heard about a group of minstrels in a faraway country. They were traveling around from town to town, presenting their skit, their play, to towns all over Europe. It was fall, getting closer to the winter, colder and colder outside. Wherever they would go, whether it's a tavern or a a community hall, they found that the crowds were thinning out. There were fewer and fewer who were paying to watch these performers perform. They were getting road-weary. And one evening before uh, this group was to go out and play in this particular community hall, one of them noticed outside in the window it was starting to snow. He got his troop together and he said, I see no reason for opening tonight. Fewer and fewer people are coming. It's getting colder and colder. We're barely able to survive. We ought to just give people their money back and and just not even go through with it tonight. The other guy said, yeah, I agree. This is horrible. I hate this. And they started complaining together. One of the older members said, you know what? Let's go out tonight and do it one more time from our hearts. Let's give it all that we have. We owe it to them to give give them our best performance. Let's put our hearts into it. After tonight, we can quit. But let's give them our last best performance. You're right, they said. Let's go for it. They went out. It was their best. It was perfect. It was pristine. They felt good about it, even though just a few people had gathered, not many at all, a handful. Afterwards, when people were leaving and the doors closed, that older guy in that band of minstrels came up to his fellows with a note in his hand. He was trembling. He said, listen to this. And he opened it up. Thank you for a beautiful performance. And it was signed, your king. The king of their nation happened to be in the area and came and saw them perform that night. They almost quit, but their king came. And their king saw what a beautiful performance they did. And you know what? It's all about our king watching. We do what we do for our king in his name to be rewarded by our king. Heavenly Father, we all have time and talents and treasure And we wonder about using it. We wonder about giving it. Lord, what matters most of all is what you see in the hidden parts of our heart, not what others see. And so, Lord, I pray that you would make out of your church, your body, a group of honeycombs, those that overflow with sweetness, blessing others giving freely because you have given freely to us. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your love to us. Thank you for your plan for us. 
And it all begins, Lord, we know, with giving our own lives and hearts to you. That's really what it's all about. It's not any amount or percentage. It's a life, a heart, a will that surrender to you. And so we ask you to take us, Lord, all of us, in Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen.